Could the space wars of science fiction become reality? Space is increasingly becoming weaponized. While that may seem very far away, the dangers felt on Earth would be all too real. Americans would feel an immediate impact, uh, our ability to uh, pump gas into our cars or withdraw money from our banks would, would uh, be very much threatened. In this special report, we dive into how this could all play out, the steps being taken, and how space maybe isn't so far away. Welcome to China in Focus, I'm Tiffany Meyer. It's been called the final frontier. And in recent decades, the race to space has only gotten bolder. But part of that contest has changed. Now, it's about weaponizing space. A recent report by the Defense Intelligence Agency states that space is being increasingly militarized. Militarization of space has already occurred. It occurred decades ago. The real question is weaponization. Uh, are we going to put weapons platforms into space? Are we going to threaten satellites in space with weapons? That's Brandon Weikert, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. The DIA report goes on to note both China and Russia see space as a must for winning modern wars. China's test of a hypersonic missile last year caught the world off guard. But maybe it shouldn't have. White Kurt notes the difference between events described as a black swan versus a gray rhino. Black Swan is a totally unanticipated event. It's something that we, you know, never saw coming. And when it arrives, it completely devastates and upends the existing order. And it will continue to do so until a new equilibrium is found. A gray rhino, as my friend Michelle Walker has written about in her wonderful book of the same name, she coined the phrase, is basically it's a phenomenon or a problem that you see way down the line, but you figure it's not a priority right now. You've got time to figure it out. So just ignore it until it's suddenly it's stampeding over you and you're being crushed under the weight of the problem. So how would those terms translate to space development? Whitecart notes, if America continues on the path it has, we could end up with a space Pearl Harbor. Unlike 9-11 and unlike the original Pearl Harbor, we don't have the kind of latent capability to survive and to hit back if we lose those key satellites in orbit. And furthermore, our satellites are so integral to everyday life, more so than our fleet at Pearl Harbor was, more so than even those twin towers and, and the, the part of the Pentagon that was blown up were on 9-11. If we lose enough of those satellites, there's no putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. We lose our country in a way. We lose our economy, certainly, and we'll probably lose the next war. And then we're living in a whole new world. And why are these satellites so important? The satellites that we rely on, that we've relied on for 30 plus years now, without those systems, neither our military nor our civilian society can function uh, at all, really. But that's not all. White Kurt notes. 
knock out our command and control satellites for our nuclear weapons in geosynchronous orbit, or you could knock out the wideband global satcom satellite system, you knock out the uh, MUOS system the Navy relies on to coordinate naval forces around the world, you've basically rendered the U.S. military deaf, dumb, and blind. So why would satellites be so important in times of war? Any war with Russia or China will be occurring closer to Chinese and Russian territory. So we'll have to go beyond our territory across an ocean, uh, and we'll need those satellites for logistical pinpoint assistance as well as for surgical strikes and for coordinating our forces. You remove those systems and you have effectively rendered us combat ineffective. You could potentially shut down our economy, our society as we know it could ground to a halt, which could create chaos here at home. But that's something we could prevent if steps are taken. Dr. Malkin Davis, Senior Analyst in Defense Strategy and Capability at ASPI in Canberra, Australia, offers three steps to do it. At least in terms of Western liberal democracies, uh, is to strengthen resilience uh, in space. And what that means is having the ability to augment existing satellite capabilities with larger numbers of small satellites that can share the load and uh, so that we're not putting so much uh, dependency on a small number of large satellites. Uh, secondly, uh, that's, there's a process known as disaggregation where we share um, space support across multiple satellites um, so that if some satellites are taken out, uh, it degrades gracefully rather than catastrophically. Thirdly, um, uh, the focus is on rapid reconstitution, the ability to rapidly launch satellites in a matter of hours or, or days to uh, essentially recreate and reestablish essential space support. As for other options, Rick Fisher, Senior Fellow at the International Assessment and Strategy Center, offers some advice. Main action that the United States can take, and, and has been taking, I would say, for several decades, is to try to develop uh, counter space capabilities that would deter China and Russia from attacking American satellites. Now, on the other side of the coin, the United States says very, very little about uh, what capabilities it has developed because we want to try to set an example. We want to try to convince the Russians and Chinese not to use their capabilities, not to develop them. In that vein, Vice President Kamala Harris announced recently the U.S. would be banning anti-satellite missile tests. Fisher says those comments amount to virtue signaling. Largely as a way to appeal to uh, American uh, arms control advocates, uh, uh, groups that uh, advocate for uh, curtailing uh, such capabilities in space, because our enemies are not going to follow this example. Past examples of those kinds of tests include Russia's ASAT test last November that left 1,500 pieces of debris in the sky, nearly destroying the International Space Station, or China's launch in 2007 that created around 3,000 pieces of debris still careening through space today. Weikart notes the dangers those abilities pose to the U.S. Right now, what we have is a very uh, bizarre instance where the United States is heavily dependent on space. Our enemies know it. 
And our enemies are completely going full bore in developing and testing their own ASAT uh, weapons, whereas we appear to be on the brink of trying to basically, uh, you know, uh, unilaterally disarm ourselves in space at this critical moment, which is not where we need to be. But it's not just ASAT tests. There are also other kinds called soft kill. Dr. Davis points to jammers as one example. Yeah, these are what's known as soft kill capabilities in the sense that they, they don't physically destroy the satellite, but they just disable it or deny it uh, to, uh, for use. Um, and what that would mean is if, if an adversary undertook a, a large scale uh, campaign in space using these soft kill measures, um, what's commonly termed a Pearl Harbor in space, um, you would have very substantial and immediate effects on society and the economy. Our day-to-day -day lives would be affected. But just how would that play out? For example, uh, the stock market uh, can't function without access to timing signals from GPS satellites. So the stock market would absolutely, uh, essentially fall apart in terms of their ability to undertake financial uh, trading. That would, of course, huge economic instability across the planet. But there's more. Our societies are heavily dependent on satellites to function in their day-to-day -day activities. Um, everything that we uh, take for granted from our, uh, our smartphones in our pockets through to getting money out of an ATM to buying food at the shops uh, to, to uh, essentially inter financial transactions on the international uh, stock markets all rely on satellites. And if you have a space war where our satellites are either physically destroyed or uh, disabled through soft kill, all of that falls apart. Given the growing importance of space, there are also a growing number of races to develop it. Not only do we have uh, the race to develop military and uh, counter space capabilities uh, to deter our enemies, we're also in a race to control the Earth-Moon system. Uh, this means that both the United States and China primarily are in a race to occupy the moon, to occupy the best locations, most of them on the southern hemisphere of the moon, to ensure that uh, both that we each have uh, appropriate uh, strategic locations under our control and also can secure access to the moon's resources, which uh, in uh, 10 or 30 years could become decisive for economic prosperity on Earth. China wants to control that prosperity. It wants to be able to deny that prosperity to the United States and all other democracies. But an all-out war would likely be met with an equal, if not greater, response in force. The dangers, experts point out, lie in hidden attacks. Dr. Davis notes China's dual-use capabilities add an extra layer of confusion. In a period leading up to a crisis or a war, what you could see is grey zone actions in space, whereby uh, an adversary utilizes legitimate commercial space activities as a cover for positioning counter space systems and anti-satellite weapons, or for interfering with uh, satellites using commercial 
um, uh, satellites. Uh, earlier this year, the Chinese uh, launched a satellite into geosynchronous orbit called Shouzhan-21, uh, which had the ability to grapple another satellite and move it into a different orbit. And they actually demonstrated this with another Chinese satellite. And you have that sort of potential where that sort of technology could be legitimately used, for example, to clear space debris, but it also could be employed to undertake counter space attacks. Now, if the Chinese regime were to get that edge and, say, take over the moon, what would happen? The Chinese would have to take actions in order to deny access to the moon by the United States and our democratic allies. This would mean that China would have to put weapons on the moon, most likely uh, laser weapons, but perhaps also uh, kinetic weapons. While the U.S., Russia, and China are leading the space races right now, what about other countries like Iran and North Korea? What kind of attacks could they launch? They're more likely to go down the path of soft kill, particularly using cyber attack on satellites or jamming. Um, and so that's certainly an area that everyone is keeping their eye on in terms of could we be facing in, in a future war against a, a, a regional uh, rogue state like Iran uh, a series of cyber attacks on our critical space infrastructure. Uh, and I think that's quite likely. And for how to defend against these types of attacks. It really is about um, our own cyber defenses, hardening our, our systems against cyber attack, uh, having the ability through offensive cyber capabilities to take out their um, cyber systems that could threaten our satellites. And, and we get into a situation of what's known as the battle of the first cyber salvo. Uh, whereby our attack is swifter on them than their attack on us. Now, going beyond cyber and into space, what options do we have for protecting the satellites themselves? Possible to make our satellites more maneuverable, to uh, ensure that they're, they're not captured or, or a co-orbital satellite at a minimum is not able to uh, disrupt their function. Uh, we can also invest in camouflage. It is uh, possible to create shrouds around satellites that make it much more difficult to uh, track them with uh, radar or even uh, optical uh, devices. And also, it's, it's really necessary simply to have replacement satellites available. Uh, that is probably the best defense. And where do these replacement satellites come from? The only reason that we're even competitive is because of companies, small space startups, notably Elon Musk's SpaceX. He also touches on the mini satellites or CubeSats that Starlink has been pushing. Those have already been playing a role in helping Ukraine amid the Russian war. But beyond the hardware, perhaps there's another area Elon Musk is aiding, reigniting the dream of discovery. Robert Downey Jr. in those Marvel Iron Man movies uh, based his portrayal of that legendary film icon on Elon Musk. And so Elon Musk still holds a very important place in most American minds. That's because of space, more so than any other product he produces. And so we have to tap into that interest. You have to also have a longer-term strategy for reigniting the passion in our education system. If that doesn't happen, experts warn the U.S. will continue to fall behind in these new space races and that our enemies could even be teaming up. 
And now China might be partnering with Roscosmos, Russia's space program, which is a nightmare scenario for us because now you have two very high-tech authoritarian Eurasian powers co-mingling in space to dominate space, to beat America in orbit to the moon, to the asteroid belt where there are so many mineable natural resources and even to Mars. They may actually beat us there because of the amount of resources they're throwing in to these missions, whereas the United States is still trying to put its space boots on, if you will. And so this is the real threat. As the space races rage on, space-based military branches have been popping up in various countries. The Trump administration established the U.S. Space Force. Chinese have had their own space force since 2015. The Russians have established an aerospace force since 2016. Other countries are going down this path, including in Australia, where we're talking, we've just stood up Defence Space Command. So um, I think that we're taking space as a domain much more seriously. He goes on to note what caused that shift. In the past, we've kind of assumed that it would always be there, that it would be an enabling domain that we'd always have access to. Now we're recognising that space is a contested domain that we have to uh, struggle to maintain access to, and so therefore we need the right sorts of organisations. Um, and that's where space forces come in. But it also, we are looking far more forward uh, into the future in terms of uh, a wider horizon. As space becomes ever more important for life here on Earth, where do we start countering our vulnerabilities? First thing is we've got to have some big wins for human spaceflight. Look, the NASA does a wonderful job with their on-manned probes. We've got some wonderful pictures of the galaxy, and it, it's very important for our understanding of our place in the universe. But at, from a near-term geostrategic and economic perspective, it's really not that important to people. But if you see Americans returning to the moon, building colonies on the moon, if you see Americans going to Mars, putting the American flag on, on Mars, that's going to reignite that passion. If that doesn't happen, Russia or China could become the dominant force in space. So you might actually have a, an instance where the United States has to literally fight its way into orbit if it just wants to get back into space. You'll have a situation where our satellites will be completely under vulnerable attack because they will be uh, in, a, in a zone of Chinese dominance in space. It's not a world we want to live in, and it's not a world that's going to be safe for the United States or ordinary Americans in any way. But it's not all bad. As a counter to unilaterally banning ASAT tests, VP Harris also announced that the U.S. has made the single biggest increase in funding military space capabilities for the coming year. The question now is if that'll be enough to keep up with Moscow and Beijing, who are going full steam ahead. On the other hand, Weikart shares one important message. You don't need a degree in astrophysics to help make a change, or even lots of money. So if you're aware of the problem, uh, you know, call your congressman, start getting involved at the local levels. It, it works. I worked on Capitol Hill for years. The best way to get through to your congressman, if you don't have a lot of money to throw around, is get your fellow citizens together and do massive calls to the, to the congressmen and congresswomen and tell them we care about this issue. As the space races continue to heat up, will the U.S. repeat the success of being the first country to land a man on the moon and continue to pave a path and exploring the next frontier? Or will it fall behind to the back burner and lose its hold? 
Coming up, Shanghai is upping its pandemic control measures. Videos show some areas are setting up fences and other physical barriers to block residents from leaving their homes. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Shanghai's lockdown restrictions are getting stricter. Residents say their situation is getting worse with the implementation of what they're calling hard isolation. Let's look at what's going on. Abiding by Beijing's zero COVID-19 policy, Shanghai strengthened its lockdown rules on Friday. Starting last weekend, authorities began to apply a policy they call hard isolation in some areas. The strategy follows its name literally. Under it, authorities use iron fences and barricades to block off residential buildings. As of Sunday, some areas in Shanghai have been locked down for almost 50 days. The city's Pudong district has been shuttered for nearly 30 days of lockdown, while the hard isolation policy has been in place since Saturday. And Pudong isn't alone. Pictures and videos circulating online show the strengthened rules are being enforced in multiple areas of Shanghai. In one of them, a woman was seen arguing with a man who came to seal her apartment unit's entrance. She told him all residents left in the unit are all senior citizens, women and minors, and called it dangerous for them to be sealed inside with no way out. Some roads have also been blocked off with iron fences. Locals are raising concerns that the hard isolation policy will further worsen what's been called Shanghai's humanitarian disaster. The virus in our lives does not threaten people. Rather, the authorities' wrong policy produces a political virus. This political virus has harmed the general public. But some residents are fighting back against the new rules. Videos reveal that in some residential compounds, residents are removing the newly installed wire mesh blocking the front of their buildings. And pandemic control workers don't appear to be stopping them. Other clips show that in some residential compounds, authorities actually failed to install the iron fences at all, with residents blocking them from doing so. The police specialize in restricting your freedom, not allowing you to go outside. They don't care if you starve to death. I told them, the Communist Party is a party without human nature. It does not know how to behave as a human being. It is not a regime elected by the people, so it is not subject to the constraints of the people. On the contrary, the regime has brainwashed people, distorting the facts, reversing black and white, controlling public opinion, and controlling the people's right to speak. One Shanghai resident, surnamed Hu, says he believes the Chinese people's resentment toward the Chinese Communist Party has reached its peak, spurred on by the tightening restrictions. To end today's episode in a new face-off between the U.S. and China, Beijing condemned Washington on Wednesday following the sailing of a U.S. warship through the Taiwan Strait. China accused the American side of provocation. The U.S. Navy maintains the ship's movement was part of routine transit along the strait in accordance with international laws. And that the warship's passage, quote, demonstrates the U.S. commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. Washington has been sending vessels through the strait about once a month, but Beijing sees them as a sign of support for Taiwan. It views the democratic island as part of its territory, despite the island's independent leadership. 
On the other hand, Taiwan's defense ministry called the situation in the waterway normal. The U.S. has no formal diplomatic ties with Taiwan, but it's one of the island's biggest supporters and arms suppliers. That relationship is a constant source of heightened tensions between Beijing and Washington. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow.